but that's what makes new life in many respects um, uh, quite unique. Uh, but in addition to that, I, I mean, we have tried to resist the way of what I call formational compartmentalization in that we want to learn from every facet of the body of Christ that we possibly can. And so, yeah. uh, you know, on one given Sunday, you'll probably have a Trappist monk that we're interviewing on the stage. <laughs> and then the next week we're talking about um, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit and <laughs> the deliverance. Uh, and then the following week we're at a Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, prayer protest. Uh, followed by, uh, you know, a, a, a retreat at a monastery, what have you. So um, we're all over the, the spectrum on that. And I think that's what makes new life what it is. The patience paid off, now it's go time. go time. No worries all around me, I'ma get mine. Born in the Queen City, got the 4-9. Go to Green Trip, told me where the cosign. So people doubted me, that's close to me, that's their regret. When I make it, I'ma take it, all I do is rest. Remain grinding, self-care, that's when I'm at my best. A little crazy, that's when I'm at a test. Feeling tuned. Yeah, we riding, yeah, we rolling. All the way to the ocean, uh. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, Glenn Siepert. I am your host, and this is episode number 151, and it's my conversation with the legend, Pastor Rich Velotis. So Rich and I actually went to seminary together way back in the day when we were youngins, <laughs> And uh, since then, our, our lives have taken different, I don't know, different paths, I guess. He's pastoring a large church in New York City, and uh, I'm down south in the Carolinas uh, doing this podcast that often raises the alarms <laughs> of a lot of church people. Uh, but I've been following him on social media for a while, and he wrote a, a book recently called The Deeply Formed Life, and I read it, and I reached out to him, and I said, Rich buddy, pal, I think that this uh, this book and your work would make a really cool uh, conversation on my podcast. What do you think? And he was like, yeah, man, let's do it. So we had a really good conversation. And I really appreciate Rich. I appreciate his work. I appreciate his approach to ministry. And we talk about that very early on in the episode. Uh, so I'm not going to spoil it for you here. But uh, we align on a lot of things, uh, which is really cool. Uh, he has a really cool church, really cool ministry, very diverse, uh, not just culturally diverse, but very diverse in thinking uh, in the way that people think about and understand the Bible and Christianity and uh, all, all the things. It's a place where everybody's welcome, and uh, I appreciate that immensely. So major props to him in doing that in a very complicated place <laughs> in, uh, in New York City. So anyway... All that to say, uh, we have some really fun things coming up on the podcast. Uh, yesterday, I actually talked to um, Elaine Pagels. Elaine Pagels uh, wrote a book called The, the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, she's also she's one of the top scholars in the world on the Gnostic texts, uh, the Nag Hammadi scriptures, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary. Uh, we had a really good conversation and after that we were done recording we talked for like another 40 minutes and she was asking me about the podcast and about my story 
and she was just really, really encouraging, which was wild. And I am, I'm excited to, to share that episode with you, uh, probably in a few weeks, or even brainstorming. We were brainstorming yesterday about maybe some future things that we might do together, which is pretty wild as well. Uh, next week, I'm talking to Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman is another uh, top scholar in early Christianities, um, Gnostic type stuff. I'm talking to him next week. That's going to be wild. Uh, that episode will drop probably in the summer. But really fun things coming up uh, that I'm really excited to share with you. Uh, we also have some some Zoom gatherings happening. So if you're not part of the What If Project Facebook community, uh, I'm not sure what you're doing with your life, but you need to <laughs> you need to go to the show notes and uh, find the link and go visit because we have Zoom like author Zoom nights where like once a quarter, maybe once every other month. I'll invite a previous podcast guest to come on uh, to Zoom to chat with the group about a book that they wrote. Uh, and we have some really, we have some fun ones coming up. Uh, so far, we've talked to Brian McLaren. Uh, that was a lot of fun. We've talked to uh, Forrest Clay, who's releasing a brand new album very soon. Um, and we have some other ones coming up over the summer. It's a lot of fun. And the group is really cool. We have like 250 people in the group. And it's just a safe place to ask your questions and be yourself and find people who are on the journey, who are also asking questions. And it's not a place where people are shamed for believing differently or having questions. Nobody's in there with Bible bullets firing them at people or anything like that. It's just a really safe place to explore, ask questions, be loved and uh, be yourself. So head over to Facebook and uh, check that out. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to Patreon and uh, buy me a coffee, two places where you can go to support the show financially. If this has encouraged you or inspired you or pushed you forward in your faith, Patreon is kind of like a tier-based monthly thing. Buy me a coffee is like a one-time thing, $5, $10, $50, $50, if something struck you as, wow, this episode was really helpful, uh, that's a place you can go to show some support as well. Uh, and also, the Heretic Shop is a little bit different these days. I used to have a shop where you could buy t-shirts, hoodies, hats, all the things. Uh, I, it's still called the Heretic Shop, but it's moved over to a place called Bonfire, which is a place, that the quality of the, of the stuff is much better. Um, and you can use it to make money, but I'm using it to give all the money away. So there's two... Uh, designs up there right now on t-shirts, hoodies, things like that. And uh, all the money that each one of those items brings in will be donated to a specific place. Uh, so if you go to the description, you read it, uh, it will tell you where the money will go. And uh, I like that because honestly, I mean, it makes a little bit of money, but the shop was making a little bit of money, but not much. Um, and I had to pay 30 bucks to keep it open. Uh, but Bonfire is free, uh, so I don't have to pay a cost to keep the shop open. And therefore, every dollar I get goes to me, and I'm just going to give it away because why not? I think that's a good thing, a good thing to do. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes uh, as well. Special music today is for my friend Young Citizen. Uh, he's a hip-hop artist in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, we work together at the Apple Store. He's doing great things in the community. Uh, super creative guy, super encouraging guy. So head over to Spotify, Apple Music, download his stuff. Young, that's Y-U-N-G, Young Citizen. Uh, and one thing I should say as well, if this is your first time visiting the show, welcome. 
what is this? The What If Project is <laughs> a place where we uh, kind of explore the question of what if. What if there are different ways of thinking about God and faith and the church and spirituality and the Bible and the cross and the atonement and hell and heaven and all the things that are different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us? Uh, what if there's not just one orthodox stream with which to think about these things. But what if there's many streams, many branches? What if there's many ways to think and understand about these things that we've been told can only be understood in one specific way? So that is what we do here at the What If Project podcast. So welcome. And again, this is episode number 151, and it's my conversation with Pastor Rich Velotis. Let's roll the tape. Enjoy. I just want to get right into it. Yeah. Technology taking over the mind state. Conversation standing out, just called a bad case. Then they base it off a character, a bad trait. Ain't no way to take it back, it's now it's too late. And so they say, it's our own fault. Making own decisions. Precisions took a void, not the right visions. Feeling so annoyed, no kids outside playing. They inside with the toys. Back in the day, I used to play into the street like song. Played up in the woods, I found my way back home. Both sets of friends move, now I'm all alone. My brother moved from Massachusetts all along. We came to form a bond that could never break. Friendship's a lesson that's a give and take. Beyond blessed forever. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with my friend Rich Velotis. Uh, Rich and I actually went to seminary together, and uh, he has gone on to be the pastor of New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. He's the author of the book, The Deeply Formed Life. So Rich, my friend, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to reconnect with you. Yeah, Glenn, thanks for the kind invitation. It's, uh, I look forward to reconnecting and uh, having a good conversation. Here. Yeah, so I guess my first question I'll ask is, I mean, it's been it's been a while. We reconnected a little bit before we hit record, but like, catch me up to speed. What have you been up to these days? Well, I, I mean, uh, living in Queens, um, you know, I'm a native New Yorker, so I've been in, I lived in Brooklyn for 34 years and Queens the last eight years, apart from, you know, going to college and such. Uh, but uh, still in New York, don't know if I'll ever leave New York. Uh, we were just talking about the, you know, the, the cost of living around this, in this tri-state area, which is outrageous, but I don't know if I'll ever leave uh, but yeah, married for 15 years, 11 year old daughter, six year old son, trying to pastor a congregation in Queens, uh, while being a school principal or substitute teacher for that matter at home. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> but yeah, but, um, things have been well. That's awesome. That's awesome. So New York Yankees or Mets? All huge Mets. Um, huge Mets. I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Brooklyn, lived yep. to, uh, uh, Shea Stadium. Yep. Um, went to all kinds of games as a kid with my father. Okay. So um, I, it's what's strange though, this is how God changes hearts. <laughs> uh, I used to hate the Yankees. Yeah. Um, but then I started getting a few Yankee fans who I actually liked. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm not, I don't root for the Yankees. I don't think I'll ever do that, but I don't hate them yep. as much as I did. So my heart has changed a little bit. I was the same way. I'm a huge Yankee fan, kind of like born into it. And I hated the Mets for the longest time, but then I had some 
friends at work and stuff where I met fans. I'm like, oh, you're not too bad. You're not yeah. as bad as I thought you were. So I guess we, I guess I can like them. <laughs> yeah, God can change the human heart, man. That's right. So, hey, a lot of our listeners, um, as I said before we hit record, are kind of in that that deconstructing world. They're asking a lot of questions. Uh, North American evangelicalism isn't really working for them. Some of the theology, the doctrines, the oftentimes kind of marriage to politics. And a lot of people ask me all the time, like, what churches do you know of, whether they're in person they can go to or online or whatever, and kind of be, you know, part of some sort of maybe online community. So maybe tell us like a little bit about your, your church, like what makes your church different than what maybe some people might be used to? On some levels, it's hard to even explain our church because we have drawn from so many different streams of Christian faith and, and mm. tradition. Uh, you know, our church started in 1987 by a guy named Pete Scazzaro, who, uh, many people know through his emotionally healthy books, emotionally healthy spirituality, yeah. uh, emotionally healthy leader, emotionally healthy uh, discipleship that just came out. Uh, so we started there uh, uh, in, intensely diverse in the sense of our diversity spans across ethnicities. I mean, we have 75 nations represented in our church, mm. 123 languages spoken in the neighborhood where our church gathers, mm. um, generational diversity political diversity, um, you know, theological diversity. So uh, within that community, it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly difficult to pastor mm, this yeah. flock of people. But that's what makes New Life in many respects um, uh, quite unique. Uh, but in addition to that, I, I mean, we have tried to resist the way of what I call formational compartmentalization in that we want to learn from every facet of the body of Christ that we possibly can. And so, mm. uh, you know, on one given Sunday, you'll probably have a Trappist monk that we're interviewing on the stage. <laughs> and then the next week we're talking about um, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit and <laughs> the deliverance. Uh, and then the following week we're at a Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, prayer protest uh, followed by, uh, you know, a, a retreat at a monastery, what have you. So yeah. um, we're all over the the spectrum on that. And I think that's what makes new life what it is. I love that because I think so many times it's easy for a church to get stuck in like a very narrow road. Mm -hmm. And I've been watching you like on Twitter for a while. And I've noticed that you, you pull from a lot of different sources. Like it's not like you just pull from one arena of authors and one kind of arena of commentaries and things like that. But you really bring a lot of voices into uh, the church and into like your world on social media. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. That's the gift. I mean, uh, part of, uh, I don't know how, how everyone thinks about the college and seminary we went to, um, but the years that I was at Alliance Theological Seminary in New York City, uh, from 2004 to 2009, mm. um, I was exposed to a world of global theology. Yeah. Um, I don't think everyone got the same education necessarily, but I was grateful for the professors that said, here's what you need to be reading outside of what is typically evangelical mainstream theology. Yeah. Uh, so uh, for my first, few, first four to five years, uh, you know, after being coming a follower of Christ, 
I was exposed to that world and it set me off on a particular trajectory. Uh, in the church, obviously you have your sermons online. Is there anything else that's online for people who might be like long distance? Um, there was a season when uh, Pete Scazzaro and I did podcasts before mm. my, my job got too intense. And I, we had to- you, you mean you don't have time for podcasts? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what do yeah. pastors do all day? <laughs> I, I know exactly right, man. Um, so uh, if, if folks went on YouTube, they could see we did a number of podcasts a few yeah. years ago that I think um, are, are still really helpful. Uh, other than that, you know, on social media, um, mm-hmm. Twitter and Instagram, that's where I'm usually testing out ideas for sermons and books and articles. Uh, but that's for the most part where people can find me. Awesome. And your book, uh, The Deeply Formed Life, uh, subtitled Five Transformative Values to Root Us in the Way of Jesus. I have it right here in front of me. As I said, it's fantastic. Uh, but before we jump into it, uh, for our listeners who maybe haven't heard of it, maybe give us like the brief overview. What's this book about? Uh, who is your your target audience? Yeah, in, in many respects, uh, it, it is an audacious and ambitious reframing of spiritual formation for this generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that does sound um, a bit audacious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I believe back to that phrase of formational compartmentalization, I wanted to write something that held together aspects of discipleship and formation that are often segmented and compartmentalized. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I write about contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And what I'm trying to do is say all of these things matter in our discipleship and formation. And it came really, it came out of pastoral concern because those five values I write about are the values of our congregation. Mm. And so it wasn't just some arbitrary values that I wanted to pick. These are the values that have shaped our congregation for many decades. I wanted to make it now accessible for people within our congregation and outside of it. So, you know, when I think about who I wrote it for, first of all, I wrote it for the people I shepherd in Queens. Mm. Um, I I was having way too many conversations of people asking me, what do you mean about racial justice? And what do you mean about um, uh, contemplative prayer. And what do you mean about, uh, you know, justice in the world? And I just thought, I, I think I need to create something that we can give to people who are new members of our community or leaders or elders or deacons. It just so happened that because of the diversity of our church, um, I think this, these values um, transcend just our local context. But when I wrote it, I wrote it for John Evangelista in the second row. I wrote it for Beverly mm. Jacobs in the fourth row. I wrote it for Mabel and Tony Jeremita, uh, who are on the side of the church. Those, these are the people <laughs> that I wrote it for. Yeah. Um, it just so happens that because our community is so diverse, um, it's landed, I think, uh, in many places outside of it because uh, it, it's, it's resonating, uh, thankfully. That's good. Yeah. I mean, so many times you read a book and you can tell it doesn't necessarily, it comes from a very researched place, but maybe not a very heartfelt place. And you can really tell that this book, like you're in this book and it almost feels like you're literally speaking to somebody. So that really makes a lot of sense as to why, as to why it feels that way. Yeah. I would write chapters and I'd be thinking, what would this congregant be asking? <laughs> or, or what has, have they said to me that I need to make sure I want to be clear and gentle and uh, truthful. Um, so it's really come out of a incarnational, local, um, you know, reflective place there, as opposed to just I'm out in the cloud somewhere. Yeah, for sure. Now we obviously don't want to give away all of the 
the the pearls of wisdom in, in the book, but um, you just kind of went through what the five transformative values are. Uh, again, for our listeners, one, contemplative rhythms, two, uh, racial reconciliation, three, interior examination, four, sexual wholeness, and five, missional presence. And so of these five, I'm curious, like, which one of them weighs maybe heaviest on your heart these days? Like, we're recording this in April 2021. I was like, which one of those is like the biggest one for you right now? And what does it look like for that particular uh, value to kind of play out in your everyday life? Yeah, I, I think um, the first two, uh, the first one's the one that I think I'm always thinking about mm. because I think everything flows from that place mm-hmm. um, of contemplation, of prayer, of union with God. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we address matters of race, the way that we think about our interior life, the way we think about our bodies, the way we think about mission and justice in the world, uh, I really believe flows from a deep place of abiding in Christ in prayer. So I'm always thinking about that. Um, but to your question, you know, in the past year, um, you know, almost every year, but the level of intensity r- across race, mm-hmm. um, that's something that is regularly on my mind. And I think in light of the political divisiveness and racial injustice that we have seen, especially in 2020, and a number of folks leaving new life as a result of some of the things that I've preached and said, mm. um, that value is probably um, on my mind more than the others at this point. Yeah. What's it like, I mean, as a pastor, because I know like I've talked to a lot of pastors who are just really afraid to address those things from the pulpit because they're afraid of either the backlash from the congregation or maybe backlash from the board. You know, people who aren't going to like in the leadership, you know, what the pastor is talking about. Like, how do you, how do you grapple with that stuff? Because it gives people left your church because of things that you've spoken about. Like, what is how do you, what's that balance like for you? Like, how, how do you walk that, <laughs> that line? Uh, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not easy. Most of the sermons that I preach, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Oh, Rich, thanks for being so bold. I, I really don't feel bold when I'm doing mm. it. Um, you know, we tell our kids, you know, courage is just doing something while you're scared, you know, mm. uh, and not allowing it to deter <laughs> you. I feel like that's been my approach as well. I know what I'm going to say is going to um, trigger some folks and anger some folks. Um, but the, I think the way fundamentally, the, the reason I've been able to um, try to shepherd people in this particular area is because I truly believe something about the gospel. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not trying to get at some sociological principle, or I'm not trying to get at uh, just addressing some of the emotional um, realities that people are feeling. Uh, the, the thing that guides my preaching and teaching is a particular understanding of the gospel that does not see matters of racial justice and reconciliation as ancillary but as foundational and central to the good news. And so because that's my starting point and because uh, I'm so convinced that Christ didn't come just to get people into heaven or and Christ didn't die so that we can simply wrestle with particular uh, theories of atonement, mm-hmm. Christ died uh, to create a new humanity uh, to tear down the dividing wall of hostility that, that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2, 
to create a new family. And so um, I am convinced of that. And so that's the reason I'm able to push forward because I've been so captured by that gospel vision. Uh, and so that's on one end. On the other, I mean, I've had to do a lot of just my own interior work to, um, you know, in terms of self-differentiation uh, to, you know, remain close to myself and my values that I, that I believe are informed by the gospel mm -hmm. while remaining emotionally close to others in times of high anxiety. That's kind of my, the operating principle behind much of what I do as a pastor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very similar to, you know, Jesus being full of grace and truth. Uh, I'm trying to do that in a, in a pastoral capacity, speaking truth that is informed by the gospel while remaining emotionally close to people, which is very difficult. But um, those are the ways that I'm trying to navigate through the complexity and divisiveness and um, the, 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 the ways that how emotionally charged these conversations are. Mm, yeah, that's so good. What would your advice be to a pastor who's listening to this and maybe they're kind of pastoring a, a, a congregation that's maybe got people who aren't very open to the, to the idea of the things that you just talked about, like the gospel and justice kind of going hand in hand, but they're trying to like move their congregation along and they're mm -hmm. getting some kickback. Like what would your advice be to that, to that person? You know, for the pastor, um, one is I think a theological in nature and the other is about, um, uh, you know, spaces of formation. Mm. Um, for the theological, I, I think the fun, as I just mentioned, I think the fundamental question that informs the degree to which people are engaged in this conversation is how do we understand the gospel? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think what a pastor, you know, on some levels, if I were to ask 20 people in my congregation, um, what their definition of the gospel is. First of all, that's a terrifying question for me. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just is going to reveal uh, all the, the gaps in my preaching and teaching. <laughs> right. A lack of clarity I've given here. Um, Have you listened so, to anything I've said? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Going to heaven when you die, Pastor. I'm like, good Lord. Oh, you know? man. Um, so that's a terrifying question for a pastor, but I think it's a good yeah, one. Sure. Um, how, and I've done that exercise before, you know, write down on a mm -hmm. piece of paper what uh, your understanding of the gospel is and let's share. Mm -hmm. And half the time I'm going, dear Lord, and I'm taking <laughs> all the blame myself, like I have not done a good job. But I do think that's a great, a great question to wrestle with because people often think they're being faithful to God by not talking about matters of race or mm -hmm. politics or what's happening in, in the world socially. They think they are being faithful to God by avoiding that and focusing on heaven. Uh, but if it can be reframed, you know, kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven and what, what, what happened when Jesus died and what mm. is the significance of the resurrection? Uh, I think that's the place to begin for pastors and it is slow and it is painful and incremental. Um, that's the first thing. Then in terms of pastors who are trying to think through this in terms of, in terms of process and in terms of the spaces, I, I really believe that any kind of cultural shifts that take place in churches, theologically, missionally, whatever it is, really require um, uh, incremental steps, starting small and mm -hmm. moving outward. 
And so whenever I'm introducing some new content or a shift in theology or an emphasis, I'm, I'm wrestling with this with our staff. I'm bringing it out to our leadership community, to our elders, and then I am in, you know, introducing it to the larger community. Um, it's, it just so happens that most pastors get a burden to preach on something new. Mm. They offer to the entire community, and then they're getting all these emails. Right. <laughs> They have not created a, um, uh, you know, a, an approach that that builds buy-in from core people in the community mm. uh, and working outward. So the temptation for pastors is to hear something new or novel or whatever it is and say, everybody needs to hear this. And I'm thinking, no, no, what, who needs to hear this are the core people and let's work outward. So part of it is just, I think, theological conviction and clarity. And the other is how do those things get rolled out? Uh, especially when we're trying to think about cultural and theological shifts in a local community. Yeah. Cause I guess the pastor can get, you know, overly excited about a new idea, a new thing that you learn, or maybe overly passionate about something that you hear going on in the world, like with George Floyd and all this stuff over the summer. And if your congregation maybe isn't ready necessarily to hear that idea or step into that arena, uh, you kind of have to lead them along, shepherd them along, I guess, in a in a way that, and so that they're ready for it eventually. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I know what it's like to get excited about something and, <laughs> and want to preach it tomorrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard a lot of people in the process because I haven't given it enough thought, you know? So. Yeah. Hasn't worked itself into your own life yet, right? <laughs> exactly right. So for me, I really love the first uh, two chapters. They really hit me the hardest, uh, which focus on that first value, uh, contemplative rhythms for an exhausted life. Um, and I, I think the exhausted life part caught me because sometimes I feel so exhausted uh, with all the things that we have going on um, in our own world. But uh, I really appreciate it because uh, to be honest with you, I, I've really struggled to pray lately. Like it's no, it's no secret that like with this podcast, I've kind of gone off on my own path. I've done some real soul searching. I've really rethought a lot of my theology, my thoughts about God. And so I, I find it hard sometimes as I continue to reimagine like the God that I'm praying to and who God is, but, but I found it very easy to, to meditate. So kind of hard to pray, but easy to, to meditate. Like I do a lot of mindfulness meditation in the morning for yep. about 30 minutes, focus on the breath. Every time I get distracted, return to the breath. But you mentioned this in your book you talk yep. about how in contemplative prayer, like God or the spirit, the divine, whatever you want to say, replaces our focus on the breath so that every time we get distracted, we return to God instead of to the breath. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk to us more about contemplative prayer, like what's it meant for you? And you mm. have this section where you talk about reframing your distractions, because I feel like there's something that I'm trying to integrate into my life. I know a lot of our listeners are trying to do the same. So whatever Pastor Rich can do <laughs> to share with us a little bit more insight around this would be awesome. Yeah, you know, with, uh, with contemplative prayer, which, by the way, is my go-to kind of mode of mm -hmm. prayer. You know, lots of folks get like the acts model, adoration, yeah. confession, Thanksgiving. That stuff left me very tired. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> now I don't feel quite so bad because you just said but, what, what I was thinking. <laughs> I was tired, and then I, 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 I get that it works for a lot of people, but yeah. it felt me, I felt like it became now uh, about checking off things on my list with God. Yeah as opposed to communion with God. Uh, and so contemplative prayer really is not about um, the, the exchange of words, but the, the sharing of hearts. Mm. Um, it's, it's the sharing of presence. 
Uh, and I, I think it's deep calling out to deep. Uh, and so that's the primary, I, I would say 80% of yeah. my prayer is in silence. Mm. And the 20% is now maybe my writing out my prayers in a journal or, or praying written prayers or mm. contemplatively praying the Our Father. Uh, but 80%, um, I'm sitting in a chair in my bedroom. This is where I pray. I, I sit down, I set my timer for five, 10, 15. If I want to get crazy, get 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, I've done 30 minutes of silence. I thought I was going to die in the process. <laughs> yeah. um, but I sit here, I open my hands, my heart. I pay attention to my breathing. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is prayer. I'm, right. I'm, I'm inviting. I always believe God is moving towards the world in love. And prayer is essentially opening myself up to that divine union and love. Um, and so when my mind gets distracted, as it inevitably does, you know, Thomas Keating said, if your mind gets distracted a thousand times in 10 minutes is a thousand opportunities to come back to God. And that's such a gracious way of thinking about it, uh, as opposed to man, I'm such a crummy Christian because I get, I'm dist so distracted as opposed to saying it's to be human is to be distracted. Yeah. How do we keep coming back very gently? Um, and so, so much, so much of contemplative prayer has to do with our vision of God. Mm. And which is why in order for someone to do contemplative prayer, well, their image of God needs to be healed. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think the image of God needs to be healed by looking at Jesus, mm. uh, looking at his self-giving love, uh, looking at uh, his the, the cruciform way of life, uh, that that's who we are communing with. Uh, so um, it's it's funny you say Paul Tillich actually said I don't pray I meditate. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when you said that, I was uh, you found that interesting. Uh, but I I view that kind of meditation as prayer. It's opening yeah. myself uh, to the radical availability, availability of God's presence. Mm. Uh, that's what contemplative prayer for me is in a nutshell. I like that. I think for me, like growing up, it was always, prayer was always about talking it was very little mm -hmm. about listening. And it was always about talking. And I think wow. now I'm in this season where I feel like I've talked to God so much that now I'm just like, I just, I just want to sit. I just want to be. And did you have professor Danaher when you went to did you go to Niagara? You went to Niagara College? I, I did not? not. I know he's come to work on a lot of things on contemplative prayer and centering prayer. Yeah. Never had him as a professor, sadly. Gotcha. Yeah. I had him on the podcast a couple of times and he talked about like just sitting in God's presence. And he said he's retired now. She's like, I have all the time in the world to sit in God's presence. He said, People like you don't. <laughs> but he said, It's just really nice to be able to just sit and just kind of soak that in. And I've been trying to. I've been trying to fight off that urge to like talk. And I think having the kind mm -hmm. of doing the mindfulness practice has kind of got me the, in the rhythm of being quiet and just kind of focused. So I think now after reading your book, I'm trying to carry that over into a prayer time. So this is really refreshing for me. Yeah. For those listening, I mean, when I sit down, it's typically there's one or two things that I, that I'm saying, and this, this is only to get me back to the center when my mind is thinking about, the Mets losing again yesterday <laughs> or 
um, the imaginary argument that I'm going to have with someone in the congregation who, if they send me another email, that's what I'm going to say to them. Right. All the stuff that's going on in my head yeah. at that point. I usually say two things. I usually either say just the name Jesus as a way of coming back. Like this is who I'm, I'm not here to get anything. I'm here to share presence. Mm -hmm. And then the other phrase, that's the word that I use or a phrase is just here I am. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's Samuel, you know, Lord, here I am. Um, and that's, that it, that is what makes up the words that I say when I pray. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I believe that in doing this, especially over the past decade, um, God has deepened my life in, you know, in God's love mm. and has allowed me to be much more present uh, because that, that, I think that's what contemplative, that's one of the fruits of contemplative prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, it enables you to be truly present with others, uh, not just God. Yeah. I think too, like in that prayer time to have something, like you said, like a phrase to kind of ground you back into the moment for when your mind does get distracted. I, I've been using like a, trying to think of like different mantras to use like in prayer time. And just like, I have my great, great grandfather's rosary beads. And so sometimes I'll just kind of run those beads through my fingers and just say like a, a mantra over and over again, like maybe I am enough. If I'm having like a time when I'm mm -hmm. feeling like crap and I just feel like the whole world is against me, I can do nothing. I can't do anything right. Like just, I am enough. I am enough. I am enough. And just kind of keep going back to reminding myself of who I am mm -hmm. in Christ is a really huge thing too. Beautiful. So um, you talk about how the contemplative life is not a... I think you say like solo enterprise, meaning it's not like meant to be done in, in isolation, but community. So I'm wondering, can you talk to the person listening who they're really into this? They're really kind of vibing with you and kind of talking about contemplative prayer, contemplative life, but they've been burned by community. Like, not like they just had a disagreement with somebody, but, you know, we have listeners who have had some really traumatizing experiences, like in the church have been victimized emotionally, mentally, physically by people in the church, lay people, leadership, So talk to that person who's drawn to this life, but they're also, they find the idea of church community to be repulsive for lack of a better word. Yeah. I, I would say, I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, um, I'd also say that, um, you know, we, we are wounded in community and we are healed in community. It, mm -hmm. it, it may not be the same community, yeah. um, but community is integral to the healing process and what it, what it means to be human. Mm. Um, and so uh, it makes a lot of sense for people who have been wounded to now shut off to any form of community. Uh, I think the question is, uh, what does it look like to be discerning? Yeah. Uh, what does it look like to uh, take incremental steps. Mm. Uh, there are lots of folks that I know who have been so wounded and there's, and they're so craving community that there's very little discernment. They're just jumping right in and then finding themselves very frustrated in the process again. Mm. Uh, so I, I think, um, recognizing that, uh, woundedness and healing are, are both byproducts of being in community, mm. um, not necessarily the same one. Mm. Uh, and so, um, that's the first thing I'd say. Uh, and, and for those who are thinking, like, I, I do believe contemplative prayer is most sustained in the context of community. Uh, you know, I, I visit, you know, couldn't do it last year because of COVID, but 
I go to a Trappist monastery in the Boston area uh, every year. Mm. And these folks, you know, it's a community of monks, you know, uh, Trappist monks. Most, a lot of folks know Thomas Merton and mm-hmm. you know, Merton was a, a Trappist monk in Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, but they are praying five, six, seven times a day in community. Mm. And there is something, I, it, you know, it's, it's like being carried um, by the community when you can't do it yourself. And I discovered this, Glenn, last year when I led, when the pandemic began, I led a series of midday prayers, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays on social media. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked by two things. Number one, the amount of people who were uh, joining for 15 minutes mm-hmm. and the amount of testimonials that I've received of people saying, I've never prayed this much in my life. And I needed a community to help me to do it. And I just thought, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that if, if people are struggling to pray, mm. um, community can be a great gift. Uh, and, and more than just kind of like the accountability thing there, I, I look at it more of there are times when I need to carry others mm. and there are times where I need to be carried. Yeah. Uh, there are times where I'm the guy who is paralyzed who needs his four friends to open up a roof and get him to Jesus. Mm. There are times where I need to be carried by friends. And then there are times where I'm the one carrying a friend. Uh, that's the gift of community. Sometimes we, we're carried and sometimes we need to carry others. Um, and I think that's when it comes to prayer and contemplative prayer like this, um, that's one of the best ways that it can be strengthened. Yeah. And I think community, you know, to your point, can look different in different seasons of your life. Right. I mean, like you just talked about COVID. I mean, community looked entirely different for Mm. people for this last year, but yet community was still able to happen. And I think that like, if somebody gets burned in a church, they have a horrific, horrific experience. They leave, you know, we often think like jumping back into community means why I got to jump back into another church setting. I go to another church another Bible study, whatever, but it might be something different. Like it could be a Facebook group that you're a part of for a while that could be your community and that could be a bridge that helps you heal a little bit until you're able to maybe step back into a different kind of in-person community so i think to your point like different Mm -hmm. seasons bring about different types of community but just because you're not in the traditional community in the traditional sense of a church doesn't mean you're not able to be part of some kind of community that's so true and it's funny you say that because two weeks ago we uh, i noticed that a lot of folks started attending new life, uh, during the pandemic. Mm. And, uh, I knew, I knew this because people were asking me, can I go to your church? Which was a very strange question. (laughs) They were asking that from like Arizona or California. And I'm saying, do you mean, can you watch our services? Like, why are you asking for permission to watch our services? (laughs) What they were asking was, could I be part of something that you guys are doing? Yeah. Uh, and so I got enough of those uh, direct messages or emails that I just said, Hey, if you've been coming to new life over the past year in this pandemic, um, I want to have a meet and greet just to meet you. And we had over 40 people from 20 different States, uh, who've been coming to new life in the past year and hearing why they are coming to new life, hearing the, 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 the disillusionments Mm -hmm. and the pain that they've experienced. Um, and, the pockets of community that they found that's not traditional, but has been healing in the process. So to emphasize what you said, yeah, we're wounded in community and we're healed in community. 
and the community might look much different than you typically expect it to. Yeah, I love that. I My dissertation at ATS was about how the church can use social media and technology to connect with people. And I, I, I wrote it before, wow. uh, obviously, COVID hit and all this stuff. And I had a lot of people tell me, like, just in passing, like, oh, you know, it's, you know, social media can be dangerous and, you know, obviously it can. And, you know, technology, we have to have in-person. That's how you have real community. And then when COVID hit, I made a couple of sarcastic comments like, oh, I guess if anyone wants to read my dissertation, I'll sell it to you for 10 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) But it really does work. I mean, it really, it really is. And like we have, like with this podcast, like we have a closed Facebook group with about 250 people in it. Everybody in there kind of dialoguing. We have a another group where it's a Marco Polo group where we have about 15 people who just shoot videos back and forth, people in the UK, people in Canada, and we're just talking to each other. And a lot of these people, like some of them haven't been to church in a long time. And some of them as a result of this community have become more comfortable with the idea of maybe going back to a church. And so I think it's just really, we we have to be so careful that we don't demonize a particular type of community just because it's different than the norm. And we, we, that very well can be used by God in order to maybe bring some healing to somebody's life. And it's funny, I, the last, out of the last 10 years, there have probably been, it's been maybe four to five uh, friendships that mm-hmm. have really developed and, and have been nurtured. And those four or five have come through social media. Um, and these people have become dear friends yeah. that I am now have connected with deeply. It's, so it's just, yeah, you were, you were ahead of the crowd here, Glenn. Right. Uh, <laughs> head of the curve, right? Yeah. It's almost prophetic. I saw it coming. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, uh, one last question for you. Um, what is, this will be a really blunt question. What is the future of Christianity? Cause you have a short piece at the very end of the book um, and the, like the very last section where you say, uh, we need more than answers found in arguments. We need answers found in our very lives. And I like that because for most of my life, being a Christian meant being right, proving everybody else wrong, uh, arguing people into like my understanding. But talk to me, talk to me about that. Uh, we need more than answers found in arguments. We need answers found in our very lives. Yeah, when I think about that, um, there is, uh, uh, Alan uh, Kreider wrote a wonderful book mm. called um, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And uh, he was talking about the ways that Christianity spread in the first centuries. Uh, and it was not marked by, um, uh, you know, these wonderful gatherings uh, and a- attraction necessarily. Mm. Uh, it was it was marked by catechesis. It was marked by a particular approach to formation that was slow, that was patient. Mm-hmm. It was the formation of lives that it, that's what attracted people to the faith. I, I think the only hope we have is that, mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, that our lives, uh, you know, Karl Rahner, the uh, great Catholic the- theologian of the uh, 20th century said that the future of the church is essentially about mysticism, that we're either going to be mystics or nothing at all. Mm. And what he meant by that was unless Christians and followers of Jesus are having 
true experiences with God. And by that, I'm not talking about like Pentecostal charismatic experiences and the particular ways that that's manifested, Mm -hmm. but people who know God deeply and are being formed into love. um, That is the only hope that the church has. So for me, the future of the church is how are we training people to have a life with God out of which the surrounding world says, I want some of that. Yeah. Uh, our, I think we've learned that our, our programs only take us so far. Uh, even the theology that we cling to only take mm-hmm. us so far. But there is something about people who have been with Jesus, who are being marked by his grace and love, that's really going to shape the future of Christianity. So for me, in writing this book, what I'm trying to offer is a particular way of following Jesus that's not segmented, not compartmentalized, but trying to hold on to all facets of life and say, uh, this God wants to meet us here uh, and my life has been changed by it. And through that, um, you know, lead others to wanting to taste that as well. But Alan Kreider's book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church is what I think about a lot mm-hmm. uh, in writing The Deeply Formed Life and in thinking about the future of the church. Awesome. Well, man, I love it. Uh, we're just about out of time. I got to clock back in for <laughs> for work pretty soon. But thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me. And maybe we can do this again sometime. Would love to, Glenn. Thanks for the kind invitation. It's been great to catch up. And yes, let's do it again. And where, real quick, can people go to connect with you online? What's the best place? Where are you hanging out? Yeah, on Twitter and Instagram is usually where I, I hang out. So at Rich Velotis, if they want to check out richvelotis.com as well for stuff that's happening with the Deeply Formed Life and a forthcoming book that's coming out in 2022, um, they can check that out as well. Awesome. I'll put all the links in the show notes and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Len. All right, man. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed up fancy. Wish you on a pot on so go with the rainbow by the time Clancy. Uh, wishing I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go and hit a run, I'ma check. Wish I had no other sandbox beating on my chest. Wishing for my people. Uh, wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own picture, we bring our own sand. Where we live is so bland. So much with high on demand. Tiptoe around throwing high lows. Feel like James Brown, love, we go in here to dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got a hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lock. Champion, go ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG, train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wish I had red bottles on my feet. Everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride. Did this beat neat? Ever wanna follow my speed? Let's close those more keys. Hey. Carolina Rose on freeze. Hey. Wishing I could fly to the keys. Hey. That will be more free. Hey. Something hit my mind, hit the dough. Put on my fresh fit. Uh. Toast Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at the fault. We got a hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. 
Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign, wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it.